You know, I've often been asked, uh, how do you know that the Bible is true? Well, there, there's several ways we can know. Number one is just the, the subjective witness of my soul, that reading this book has changed my life. That the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I tell people, you start reading the, reading the Bible, be warned. This is a dangerous book. It will change you. It is powerful. It's why the greatest desire of my heart is to get the Bible in the hands of people and for people to actually start reading it and getting into it. It's a powerful book. We say, well, that's just subjective. But, but there's other things that tell us the Bible is true, some signs and miracles that the Bible performs. Number one, the Bible is set within reality. So the Bible speaks of supernatural things, but these things uh, occur within the context of history, and they can be checked out historically so that when we talk about Abraham being from Ur of the Chaldees, we need to know, is there an Ur of the Chaldees? And yes, there is. It's modern-day Iraq. And when the Bible talks of Saul being on the road to Damascus, there needs to be a Damascus road, and there is. You can actually go there, and you can travel that road. When it talks about a Red Sea, is there a Red Sea? You bet there is. When the Bible talks about Herod and Pilate and Felix and Agrippa, these need to be real individuals, and guess what? They are. The Bible can be historically checked out. But to me, one of the greatest signs is the unity in the midst of diversity that the Bible presents to us. You realize our Bible has 40 human authors, three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and a smattering of Aramaic. You've got six different civilizations. You've got 15 centuries. And yet, from, from Moses to John, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible has one theme. It's always saying the same thing, of the glory of God, the love of God, the sinfulness and brokenness of man, and God's redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. Folks, if that doesn't speak to the divine nature of God's word, oh, I don't know what will. But then, you know, I, I think to me one of the most beautiful ways in which the Bible presents itself is true is the way that it speaks of the future. The way that it speaks of the future. Do you, do you realize 40% of our Bible is prophetic? That God is proud of the fact that he knows the end at the beginning. Not only does he know the end of the beginning, he knows the end before the beginning. And so God speaks to us with great authority of future things. And it speaks to us of those future things with authority, with confidence, almost flippantly is the way that the Bible treats future events. As we enter this study, we're learning. This is a study of the last things. It's often referred to as eschatology. That's the study of last things. Do you know what we're getting a picture of? We're, we're getting a picture of the future. And we're getting a picture not only of what will happen, but we're going to get a picture of how it's going to happen. This is powerful. Now, a lot of people, they just want to pick right up in Revelation. But really, Daniel is the critical prelude to Revelation. Daniel's also all, uh, often been referred to as kind of uh, the book that preludes it. It's, uh, Revelation is really just the expansion of Daniel. Um, sometimes the book of Daniel is referred to as a telescope and Revelation is looked at more as a microscope. We're going to begin very broadly, even in Daniel chapter 2. It's going to be very broad, but then as we move forward, it's going to get narrower and narrower. We're going to get more specific and more specific as God reveals what will happen and how it will happen. There's only one real guideline that I'm seeking to adhere to, and I say this to you, I say this to all of us, but I'm speaking mostly to myself, is 
is this. We don't want to speculate where God is not specific. In other words, don't go beyond Scripture. I have found in my life I always get in trouble when I go beyond Scripture. And um, so we don't want to speculate. And it's a danger because we love to speculate, don't we? And if you want to speculate on your own, God bless you. Speculate all you want. You know, if you want to figure out all the details of this. But you remember what Jesus told the disciples in Acts chapter 1 before he ascended? He said, they, they asked him, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of heaven? And he, he, you remember what he said to them? It's not for you to know the times, the seasons, the epics, which the Father has established by his authority, but you'll be my witnesses. You, you just stay faithful to what I told you to do and trust that I'll work it out in the end. So we're, we're going to try not to speculate in areas where God has not been specific. The other part of that is I've seen men who <laughs> speculated, and it's on tape, um, and it's in writing, and history was not kind to them. Um, so <laughs> I don't want to be one of those guys. Um, so we're going to try not to speculate where Scripture is not specific. We're going to try to stay focused on the Word of God. Daniel chapter 2. And it's very enticing. I'm telling you, Daniel's so much fun. You know what I want to do? Just study the whole book of Daniel. But we'd never get to Revelation. And there is some speculation on the part of the staff. I won't mention any names. Jim Fruth, Bill Shiplett. Those guys, I don't know. Don't want to mention names. But those guys are speculating as to whether or not I have enough discipline just to remain focused on the parts that relate to Revelation. But we'll see. We'll see what we can do. I'm going to do my very best to stick to those parts. But Daniel chapter 2 is a critical chapter, this vision of Nebuchadnezzar that we see here. And let me see if I can set the context, because we're just going to look at verses 31. We want to stay focused on these parts that relate to end times and revelation. So we'll pick up in verse 31. But let me set the context. The context here is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar's been having some very bad dreams, disturbing dreams that have kept him up at night. There's a lot of speculation as to whether or not Nebuchadnezzar even remembers the dreams. Um, because the nature of the request that he makes, but whether or not he uh, really remembers is, is not really that important to the story. But he has these dreams, they're disturbing him, and so he calls in his counselors, all the wise men of the Chaldeans, and he brings them in, and he, he tells them, I need you to tell me um, the dream and the interpretation. I want to know the interpretation of this dream. And they say to him, well, that's great, tell us the dream, and, uh, and we'll give you the interpretation. And the king says, listen, I'm firm on this deal Tell me both the dream and the interpretation, or I'll kill you and burn your houses. King hadn't been getting much sleep lately, all right? He ain't in a good mood. Uh, and he's just telling him, I'll kill all of you, and I'll burn your house. And I don't know why he's got to burn their house after you already killed him, but he's going to do that too. And he says, but if anybody can do this, there's a great reward. And the counselors obviously say that this is impossible. I mean, nobody can, nobody's ever done this. Nobody actually can actually tell you the dream and the interpretation. Only gods can do those things. And he says, well, that's fine. And he issues an edict. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to kill all of them. And guess who is included in that group of counselors? Daniel and his buddies are included in that group. And now Daniel and his friends are in the crosshairs. They're going to die. And one of the things that you see as you read uh, Daniel, he's amazing. Him and Joseph, you know, they are the all-stars of the Old Testament. If you've got a starting five in the Old Testament... Daniel and Joseph got to be. Daniel's probably your point guard. That's who I got as my point guard. I don't know about you. <laughs> my mind, the way it works. Anyway, so, uh, so this guy, he's amazing though, but he's put in pressure packed situations and he never even bats an eye. As the old ESPN commentator, he's as cool as the other side of the pillow. He never flinches. While the rest of the world is losing their mind, guess what he's doing? He's calm. 
Because he knows who's in charge. And he's also, by the way, he's wiser than everybody else. Why? Because he's got the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do you know this this morning? That you can be a high school dropout and you can become the wisest man or woman in the world just because you know your Bible. That's the power of the word of God. So Daniel is a wise guy. He's, he's a guy who, man, he's got wisdom above everybody else. He's calm. And he says to this guy, the advisor of the king who's going who's gonna to execute the edict, he says to him, what's going on? The guy tells him what's going on. And he says, give us some time. Very, very, a lot of wisdom here. Just give us some time. So he buys himself some time. He and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go back and guess what they do? Well, they pray. Chapter one, it's a test of integrity. Now we're testing your life. And Daniel prays, and guess what God does? God reveals, God reveals the vision to him, tells him what's going to happen. And if you look down, in fact, in, chapter, in verses 20 through 23, it's powerful. He testifies the, grace, the greatness of God. We could camp out just there this morning. It's beautiful. He testifies of God's greatness, his sovereignty. He's the revealer of mystery. So before he goes to the king, he prays and he worships. And then he goes to this advisor. The advisor puts him in front of the king. And the king says to him, can you, can you do this? Can you interpret? Can you tell me the dream? And I love the response of Daniel. First of all, he says, let's just get this straight. Let's just be clear. Your guys couldn't do it. And then he says, I can't do it. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like somebody else we've studied recently? I can't do it. But guess what he says? But there's, there's a God in heaven. There's a God who can. Sounds like Joseph, doesn't it? Don't you think that Daniel had read Genesis? He knew it. He knew the patriarchs. He knew their story. And the story of the saints of old gave him confidence for the present moment he was living in. And so he speaks before the king, and he's going to give him the dream and the interpretation. So let's pick up in verse 31. It says there, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, and it struck the statue of it on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You're the head of gold. After you there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there'll be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces." In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the, the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. In those days of those kings... 
And the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Father, as we come before your word this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illumine the truths of this word to our minds so that we can understand it today. We pray that we would meet with you. We pray that we would hear your voice and that you would change us. God, we we come today not just for more information. We come to be changed. Our desire is to be transformed in the image of Christ and to be more effective for you in this world. So, Lord, speak. We plead with you, Holy Spirit, move in this service, move in this time for the glory of Christ. Bless, bless your holy word. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. You see here a, an amazing turn of events. We see very much the story of Joseph occurring here. Uh, Daniel is facing certain death on one day, and the next day, the most powerful man in all the world is bowing down to him and paying homage. And the king says that your God is the God above all gods, the revealer of mysteries, and he makes Daniel the ruler over all the wise men, probably the same guys who were instructed to teach him. Now he is teaching them. But I want to talk with you first about the interpretation of this vision, of this dream. This, this multi-structured statue with four parts, the, the head, the arms, the belly, and the thighs, and the feet, and the toes. Uh, The head of gold is first, and Daniel makes clear. In fact, it's the only real part of the dream that the Bible is very specific about. In verse 38, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, and that is you. So this head of gold we know to be the kingdom of Babylon. And he says to Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. And, And you can imagine this probably makes the king feel very good about himself. Yeah, you're right. I am the head of gold. I am really, really powerful. But notice what he also tells him in verses 36 through 37. He makes clear to the king that all that you have, all that you enjoy, all the authority and the power that you have right now has been given to you by the God of heaven. Folks, this is remarkably bold on the part of Daniel to stand before a guy who has no problem killing anybody at the drop of a hat and to stand for him, make sure you know you're the head of gold. But you are only here because God allows you to be here. You are not king because you're that great, you're that smart, or you're that powerful. You're only king because God has established you as king. That's gutsy. That's bold. 
And it's a reminder that every authority, every king, every politician, every president has been established and ordained only by the sovereignty of God. In Romans 13, 1, it says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold, but don't get too proud. You're only here because God allows you to be there. And then, in fact, in fact he tells them there's another king coming, coming the, the arms of silver, and they're going to be inferior to you. I mean, they're not going to destroy you because they're greater than you. They're going to overtake you because God is sovereign over history. And God is the one who establishes kings, sets up kings, and God is the one who puts down kings. And then he says there's another kingdom that's coming of the, the belly and thighs of, of bronze that are going to rule over all the earth. And then this fourth kingdom, we get a, a little bit more elaboration on this fourth kingdom as strong as iron with the feet. And it mentions the toes there. And obviously the toes, toes normally come in groups of ten. I'm not that smart, but I do know that. And uh, and, and a lot of people, because of that, they begin to speculate on a ten nation. And you can speculate on those things. And we will speculate on those things where God is a little more specific as we move forward. But right here, that doesn't seem to be the emphasis. Because he doesn't go in there. He doesn't even mention uh, ten here. He only tells us that they'll be strong and brittle. They're going to be a mixture of strength and weakness. A mixture of nations, we'll see. Because seeds of the nations will mix together, it says. And they'll not be that strong because clay doesn't mix well with iron. And, and to a large extent, we, we can know what these kingdoms are because they are historical. We do know that uh, the Babylonians are overtaken by the Medo-Persian kingdom. And you remember that uh, even here in Daniel with, uh, with Belshazzar, who's having a party. And you remember he brings in the sacred things of, of the temple and he brings them in. They're having this party and they're profaning the things of God. You remember a hand with no body, just starts writing the wall, which is a pretty good indicator the party's not going well. Something's something wrong here. And the hand starts writing. You remember that hand writes those words, mene, mene, uh, tekel, you farsin, which means you have been weighed and found wanting. You're done. God says, you're, you, you think you're great. It's now over because you ticked me off. You made me mad. And so we see here that, that God establishes kings, and you've got these kingdoms that come, and we can surmise to some extent. So you've got the Babylonians, you've got the Medo-Persians, you've got the Greeks who overtake the Medo-Persians, you've got the Romans who come after them, and you've got all the nations that come out of them, and there's some elaboration here on those things. But I think we, we really make a mistake. I really believe we make a mistake if we put too much emphasis on these previous four kingdoms, because I think the emphasis of this passage is on the fifth and final kingdom. So again, we don't want to speculate where God's not specific. What God is specific about is, is this fifth kingdom. Look with me. It's worth reading again in verses 44 through 45. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So God makes plain to Daniel and to Nebuchadnezzar and to Israel and ultimately to us that there is a coming kingdom that will be indestructible and will be eternal. And it will crush all the other kingdoms. And it will crush all the other kings. 
And more specifically, there will be this stone cut out of the mountain without human hands, meaning there's going to be a stone that is of divine origin. And this stone will strike the feet and crush the statue. Meaning this stone will destroy all the kings and all the other kingdoms. And he will establish an eternal and a universal kingdom. In fact, in verse 35, it says the stone becomes a great mountain. And it fills the whole earth. Meaning it will be indestructible. It will be eternal. And it will be universal. Now, who in Scripture is called the stone? The stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. The living stone rejected by men but choice and precious to God. In Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will never be put to shame. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is presented as the saving stone, as the rejected stone, as a stumbling stone, as a sovereign stone, and as a stone that crushes all the other nations. Who is it said of in Psalm chapter 2? Ask of me, and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And you shall break them like a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. It's Jesus. Do you see the picture here? Babylonians, Medo-Persians, Greeks, Romans, and out of Rome, all these other nations. But one eternal and indestructible kingdom. And one king who puts down all the other kingdoms. And they'll become like chaff, which the wind drives away. What we're really getting here is a panorama view of human history. What is often referred to as the times of the Gentiles, a period that begins in 600 B.C. with the destruction of Jerusalem all the way to this present day. 2,600 years of Israel having no Jewish king over it and dominated by the Gentiles. But what Scripture reminds us here is that there is a day coming, a day that the Scripture refers to as the day of the Lord, And the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense will become the chief cornerstone. And he'll put down all of his enemies and justice will be served. As Revelation says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That Jesus is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. That history is heading somewhere. I love what Adrian Rogers used to say. He said people would often ask him, what in the world is this world coming to? He said, I'll tell you what this world's coming to. It's coming to Jesus. And that's what Daniel tells us here. That's what God tells us here. You see, to me, the the point of this whole vision, this whole dream, is the sovereignty of God. That God is sovereign over history, and he's sovereign over kingdoms. God sets up kingdoms, and God takes kingdoms down. And there's only one kingdom that stands above all kingdoms. There's only one king who stands above all kings. And it's the kingdom of God and the king of all kings, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the question is, is, as we read this, there's an immediate context here. So we have to ask ourselves primarily, what does this mean for Nebuchadnezzar? Because that's the first audience. What's the meaning for Nebuchadnezzar? Well, the purpose for Nebuchadnezzar is to humble him. This man is incredibly arrogant. In Daniel chapter 1, he takes the sacred things from the temple of God and he brings them back to his land and he puts them in the house of his God. What is the message there? The message is simple. Not only did I defeat Israel, but our God is greater than their God. This is an incredibly arrogant man. And he's building a statue, a statue that he will build in chapter 3. 
And it was common for dictators in that land, uh, that they had, after they had conquered a part of the world, to build a statue to themselves. And it was a, a proclamation to the world of their sovereignty, of their majesty, of their lordship. That they themselves are greater than God. And the message here to Nebuchadnezzar is, you better tread lightly. Because there's only one who is God. And there's only one who is sovereign. And there's only one who sets up kings and puts them down. And it is not you. Now, does, this, does God humble Nebuchadnezzar, even though in chapter 3 he's going to go ahead and build the statue? Does God humble Nebuchadnezzar? In chapter 4, God's going to make him like a cow and eat grass. That's what you call humbling somebody. That you don't set yourself up as being greater than God. But the purpose here in Nebuchadnezzar's life was to leave him with a profound and uneasy feeling that he does not have control over the affairs of the universe. This is very similar to Jesus when he was before Pilate. You remember Jesus being before Pilate and Jesus is silent. He's not answering Pilate's questions and Pilate gets incredibly frustrated with him and he says uh, to Jesus, do you not realize I have the authority to kill you? And you remember what Jesus says? You'd have no authority over me except that which has been given to you by my Father. Pilate, let's understand something. Let's be really clear here. You really don't have any power. Do you know what God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar? You think you're great, but you don't really have any power. There's only one who has authority, and it is God. And Nebuchadnezzar, you're only in authority in as much as I allow you to have authority. You only have as much land as I allow you to have and you only have as much power, and you only reign as long as I allow you to reign. Because God is God, and Nebuchadnezzar is not. Well, what does this mean for Israel? For Israel, uh, they are the primary readers of this. This was written to God's people in exile. What was the meaning for Israel? Well, much like Joseph, God is going to use Daniel and this dream to preserve his people. And even more than this, God is writing to his people in exile and he's letting them know that failure is not final. God is writing to his people in exile and there's this evil, wicked guy who's king and he's dominated them. Think about this from the perspective of Israel. Your nation has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. The th sacred things of God have been put in the, the temple of another God. And you're probably thinking all hope is lost. We finally went too far. We finally sinned too much and all hope is lost. And you know what God through Daniel is saying to the nation of Israel? Hope is not lost. Failure is not final. You are my people. I made promises to you. And I always, I always keep my promises. What I start, I always finish. What a beautiful message God is sending to Israel. That God is not done with you. And by the way, are probably some of you in here that need to hear that as well. That your failure is not final. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's a doctrine that we call the perseverance of the saints. You know this today, that when God saves you, he saves you to the fullest. If somebody were to ask you today, are you saved? You, you, you could actually say to them, what do you mean by that? <laughs> you could say, you know what, I have been saved. I've been judiciously made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. I've been justified. I've been redeemed. 
You could say to them, I am being saved, that God is working in me to change me and mold me more and more to the image of Christ. And you could also say to them, I will be saved, that one day Christ will glorify me. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that good with God's salvation? When he saves us, he saves us to the fullest. Past, present, and future. That's the greatness of the God we serve. That he will not let go of you. And he always finishes what he started. So Israel, don't get too discouraged. God has made promises. Promises that he's yet to fulfill. And God is saying to his people, I will fulfill my promises. This guy, Nebuchadnezzar, he's not really in control. And then the final question, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ? Well, we're reminded here of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that will never be destroyed. The only kingdom that will never be destroyed. No person, no politician, no government, no king or kingdom will ever destroy the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom that never passes away. It will never be left to another people. And do we need to hear this today, by the way, in the midst of the unfolding drama of human history where everything seems like it's upside down, where nations are going crazy? It seems like everything's out of control. And if we're not careful, we'll be tempted to say, boy, if things don't go our way, all, we're going to lose everything. Surely none of y'all would say that. That, boy, if, if we lose this election, we're going to lose everything. Listen to me, if your kingdom is the kingdom of this world, you're right. If you have made your king and your kingdom the kingdom of this world and the kings of this world, one day you're going to lose everything. But if your ultimate kingdom is the kingdom of God, and if your ultimate king is King Jesus, rest assured today, his kingdom will never be destroyed. Isn't that good news today? Isn't that an assuring thing to know the kingdom of God will never be destroyed? Never left for another people. The second thing we see here is the kingdom of God brings all other kingdoms to an end. All other kingdoms are brought through, to an end through the kingdom of God and his king, Jesus Christ. That regardless of how bad things look, and if, regardless of how evil rulers and dictators appear to be, and regardless of how profane things can be as leaders lead poorly, the message of God to his people is, one day I will put down all my enemies. One day justice will come. In our world, justice isn't always served, is it? But rest assured, one day justice will be served. Do you believe that today? That Christ will come back and he will crush all his enemies. And do you know what else it says? It says the stone of Jesus Christ is going to crush all the nations of the world. That's Psalm chapter two. Ask of me and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And you shall rule them with a rod of iron and you shall break them like earthenware. And they will be like chaff. It even says here, they will be no more. Now listen to me. Do you know what that says? That says, how many nations? You can go ahead and say it. How many nations? But now we're getting real, because what nation does that include? It includes this one. Let's be real clear about something today. 
America is crushed too by the stone of Jesus Christ. Now, we love our nation. I am grateful. I don't know why God allowed me to be born into this country. I didn't earn it. And no time prior to my birth did I say, God, give me America. And if you can, make it Olathe. I'd like to have that one. No. It's just where I ended up. But I know here I've been afforded a lot of liberties and a lot of freedoms. And I'm grateful. We're grateful for our country. We serve our country. We thank those who protect our freedoms. But listen to me this morning. We don't worship our nation. She's a lousy God. And she will let you down. Because guess what? One day she's going to be gone too. And you know the only kingdom that will reign? It'll be the kingdom of God. And the king of all kings. The Lord Jesus Christ. If I ever get invited to Congress, this is the message I'm preaching. Probably won't be invited back. But this is what I'm going to tell them. Only one kingdom. Only one king. This is so critical. Kingdom of God is the only kingdom that will not be destroyed. It's the only righteous kingdom. It will bring all the other kingdoms to an end. Only the kingdom of God is eternal. So the message for Nebuchadnezzar, a very proud man, a man who feels like he's in control. The message to Nebuchadnezzar is, be forewarned, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The message to Nebuchadnezzar and in fact the message to every politician, the message to every person in authority, the message to every king, the message to every dictator is you better humble yourself. And you better humble yourself today or one day God will humble you. To Israel, failure is not final. Hope is not lost. God has made promises. He will keep them. And we will see that play out as we study the rest of Revelation. And finally, to you and I today. You and I today who exist between the cross of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Today, we are a people who have an empty tomb. By the way, these Old Testament saints, what they took by faith, we know by name. And his name is Jesus. Daniel was just taking by faith that there was going to be this divine stone. He didn't know. In fact, he's going to call him the Ancient of Days. We're going to see it in chapter 7 next week. The Son of Man. Daniel refers to him as the Son of Man. But he looked through a glass dimly. He was just taking it by faith. We know him by name. We know he died for our sins. We know he's perfect and sinless. We know he was placed in a tomb. We know he rose. Folks, we exist between the first and the second coming of Christ. We have an empty tomb. We have a full gospel. We have a changed life. We have a great Savior. And our job in the midst of a chaotic world is don't lose your heads. Stay focused. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He's the one who got us in this deal, he's the one who is carrying us now, and he's the one who will bring it to an end. 
And you know what he tells us in the midst of this day? He gives us one thing. He doesn't overcomplicate it for us. It's the ending to every one of the Gospels. Make disciples. Be my witnesses. As the Father sent me, so sent I you. One mission. Christ is coming back. Every knee will bow. But it's your job to preach. You remember old Paul Harvey, if I were the devil? If I were the devil, you know what I'd do? I'd get the church to become so materialistic that their prayers would no longer be about the souls of men. Their only prayers would be about how much more money they can put in their bank and how much nicer they can make their life. I would get you so focused on the stuff of this world that you would forget about the lost condition of your neighbor. And you'd forget about the lost around the world who desperately need the gospel. Do you know what else I would do? If I were the devil, you know what I'd do? I'd just divide the church. I'd get you fighting about a bunch of stuff that don't matter a lick. And you forget that we only have one enemy and it's not ourselves. His name is the devil. And we better stop focusing on things that don't matter and start focusing on the mission that God has given to us. And if I were the devil, you know what I'd do? I'd get you arguing over masks and mandates. Hey, you don't think the devil's involved in this stuff? You're crazy. Do you know what God is telling us today? Cut it out. This mission is too critical. The time is too short. Stop focusing on things that don't matter. And ask God to open your eyes to the lost condition of the people all around you. That apart from faith in Jesus Christ, they will not know his salvation. And the time is short. The more I study this, the more I realize. Folks, we're waiting on one thing. A word from God. Let's get busy. Let's put aside the things that don't matter. Let's focus on Christ. Let's focus on his mission. It's what he left us here to do. We are, we are like the sons of Noah, aren't we? Crying out in the midst of a wicked day that a flood is coming. And if it keeps raining like it is, I'm going to say, wait. But a flood is coming. A flood of judgment is coming. That's what we're proclaiming to the world. But you better get on board the ark of Jesus if you want to live through the other side. That's what we're doing today. Now, if you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, don't let the present uh, comforts of this day fool you into thinking that you are safe. You have one of two options. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've got one of two options. You can bend the knee to Christ today and declare him as Lord. And you can do it willingly and joyfully, knowing that he saved you by means of his sacrificial death on the cross. And you can run to him and you know his freedom and his salvation and his forgiveness. You can know it today. Or one day, you will bend the knee forcibly. He will return not... As the baby in a manger, he will return as the hawk bearing judgment. And there's no evangelism at the gates of heaven. Bend the knee. Now, as I've been preaching, the Lord often gives me a song. 
Do we have one for this? Yes, we do. It's hard to find a song on the judgment and wrath of God. I tell you, not a lot of hymns on it. But I found one. See if this sounds familiar. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift my soul to answer him. Be jubilant my feet. Our God is marching on. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to men make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching on. You know that last part? You think we can sing it? Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Our God is marching on. Father, we thank you that you are marching on. You are in control. Father, I pray if there's anybody who's watching online this morning or in this room who doesn't know you, God, just like you did in all of our lives who know you, I pray that you would move in their heart right now by means of your spirit and by means of your word to convict them of sin and the righteousness of God and the impending judgment. I pray that today they would turn their eyes upon Jesus. God, I pray that they would see the depth of their sin. They'd see the beauty of Christ who died in their place. And God, I pray that their only response would be to run to you and trust in Christ. Trust him fully as their Lord and their Savior, that they might know your salvation and your freedom. They might know the hope of heaven, the promise that they will be with you forever. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would be reminded today that you're in control. God, our world appears so chaotic. Evil men perpetrating all kinds of evil around this world. The church being persecuted today in the furthest corners of the world. Nation against nation. Wars and rumors of wars. God, I pray that like Daniel, while the rest of the world loses their heads, I pray we wouldn't lose ours. We would be a people of confident hope and peace. The people who are persuaded that God is able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day. God, I pray that we be a people who are fixed upon one mission, 
one holy passion to make your name known so that people will come to faith in Christ and your kingdom grow. God, your kingdom will not be destroyed. Help us to trust you, focus upon you until you return or you call us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.